If you've got a Bible, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew 5, 31 and 32. And then there's another section where Jesus teaches on the same topic. It's in Matthew 19. So we're going to read 31 and 32, and then we're going to skip over to 19 and read verses 1 through 12. So you may want to go ahead and find uh, chapter 19, because we'll jump over there. Uh, the title of this morning's sermon is Marriage, Divorce, Singleness, and the Good Life. Uh, I know that this topic is uh, important, but also sensitive, so we'll try to handle it uh, with caution and with care as we dive into it. And, and I really do hope that you will see uh, that Jesus' words are true and good and helpful in all these areas. So hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now let's skip to Matthew 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been, so, been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive it, this, receive it. The word of God is sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb. Let's give our attention to it this morning. Uh, into the Wild was a book written by John Krakauer um, about a man named Chris McCandless. Uh, in the, na- in the uh, late 1990s, Chris McCandless graduated from college, and he decided that he was going to cut ties with his friends, his family, his community. He was going to end, he was going to cut ties with all of his life as he knew it, and he was going to set out on a new adventure to live life totally free of relationships. He was going to trek across uh, the United States. He was going to go to the wilderness, and he was going to live alone. So that's what he did. He, he, he burned his ID and all of his things, and he just set up, literally set out walking across the United States. He even changed his name uh, to Alexander Supertramp. That's what he called himself. And he, uh, he made friends all along the way, but he lost those friendships quickly because he was moving. Uh, he worked hard. He, he, he got everything he needed to travel, and he made it uh, all the way to Alaska, where he achieved his dream of living alone. 
He found a bus out in the wilderness, and he lived there all by himself. And that lasted four months. And then four months later, a hunter found him dead of starvation in the bus by himself. And in his journal where he had taken notes and recorded things throughout his travel times, one of his last recorded sayings was, happiness is only real when shared. You see, Chris McCandless tried to find the good life on his own. He tried to find the good life apart from relationships. And what he found, unfortunately, is that the good life cannot be found apart from relationships. In fact, relationships are an integral, inescapable part of the good life. We experience the good life through our relationships with our friends, our family members, and our community. And the most basic uh, unit of the community is the family. And the most basic unit of the family is the marriage. Marriage is inescapable. There has never been a society in the history of the world that has not had a marriage, a concept of marriage. Yet, research tells us that 50% of all marriages end in divorce and that the majority of children uh, will, um, the majority of children will grow up, uh, will grow up without both parents in their homes. Um, Despite technological advances that make it easier and easier to meet people and connect with people all over the world, uh, singleness and loneliness are still rampant. How do we deal with this? Uh, Some people say we need to return to traditional values of marriage. Some people say we need to make divorce easier. And some people say that we need to just throw out uh, marriage altogether, that it's just too antiquated. Um. So what I want you to see this morning as we uh, look at this passage that is is challenging and difficult uh, because marriage and family are challenging and difficult, what I want you to see is that regardless of your relationship status, whether or not you are married or divorced or single, okay, Jesus offers you the good life of the good kingdom. The good life of the good kingdom are offered to you regardless of your relationship status. It is a gift that Jesus gives us by his grace. And so what we're going to look at is three things in this passage. We're going to look at the restoration of marriage, the reality of divorce, and the gift of singleness. So what happens here is that the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce, and he responds by restoring a biblical view of marriage. That's the first thing that we see. They ask him this question about divorce, and he answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus is getting at what is the purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage is friendship, right? When God created the heavens and the earth, he said everything was good. And then he created mankind, male and female, in his image. And it says in our image. Our is plural, That's because God existed eternally as one God, but Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's unity and diversity in the Trinity. So when he created the universe, he created with unity and diversity. When he created mankind, he created with unity and diversity. So God made male and female different. They're different sexes with different anatomies with different gifts and talents, with different roles and responsibilities, 
all the way down to the DNA. Literally, every single cell in a man's body is different than every single cell in a woman's body. And that unity and diversity is good and beautiful. The thing that was not good was that man was alone. You get to Genesis 2, and it says that that everything was good, but it says it's not good for man to be alone, so God made a helper fit for him. And God made Eve from Adam. That means that men and women were created to complement each other, and they were created for companionship or friendship. That the first marriage... Uh, the purpose of the first marriage was to give Adam a friend, a companion to do life with. That's the first thing that Jesus tells us is the purpose of marriage is friendship. The second that he, thing that he does is he restores the essence of marriage, which is a covenant. He does that in verses 5 and 6. It says, And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer one, two flesh, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay? A marriage takes place when a man and a woman leave their families. They come together and God unites them as husband and wife. The two become one flesh. That idea of one flesh is, is a symbolic. It's a sign of there's two lives becoming one. Uh, this covenant is meant to be decisive and permanent, and public. And it's made through vows to God and to each other. So a marriage is a covenant friendship that is characterized by love and loyalty. A marriage is a covenant friendship that's characterized by love and loyalty between one man, the husband, and one wife, the woman. Now, that definition may not sound very romantic, Right? It might sound like a little legal, a little wooden, a little traditional. But I want you to think about this. Think about the traditional marriage vows. Okay? These are the marriage vows that are in our uh, book of church order. These are the vows that I use. But listen to this. Ask yourself, are these romantic? Will you have this person to be your wedded spouse? Will you have this man or woman to be your wedded husband or wife? To live with them after God's commandments in the holy estate of marriage. Will you love, honor, and cherish them so long as you both shall live? They say that to God. That's the promise they make to God. And then to each other, they promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be their loving and faithful spouses in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, as long as they both shall live. Notice that those promises are future-oriented and they're action-oriented. The promises that we make in our vows are not about how we feel at that moment. It's sort of assumed, right, that at that moment at the altar that you uh, love this person and care for them and you're attracted to them. If not, that's a bad sign. You should stop, right? It's sort of assumed at that moment that you have those feelings. So the vows are not about how you feel at that moment. They're about what you're promising to do in the future. And they're action-oriented, When we make our vows, we're promising to love this person in actionable, tangible ways for the rest of our lives. And it's those actions of love that leads to feelings of love. Parents, you know that actions of love lead to feelings of love, right? You do actions of love for your kids all the time, and so you love them intensely. Kids, you probably know that actions of love lead to feelings of love uh, if you have a pet, 
Because you take care of that pet all the time, or you should. So your parents don't have to take care of it. And as you take care of that pet and you play with that pet, you develop this love and affection for this pet that barely understands your existence and recognizes you. Your actions of love lead to feelings of love. Well, that's what happens in a marriage. As we keep these vows, our actions of love lead to feelings of love. And the the Bible has a special term for spouse. Uh, The word is alop, and it means a lover and friend. As we, as we keep these vows for each other, we develop this deep, passionate, intimate friendship. We become lovers and friends. And we need Jesus to restore this view of marriage for us, just like he did for the Pharisees. Right? Uh, let me ask you this. If you're married, why did you get married? Uh, this is a question, Sharon. I often ask couples, whenever we first start their premarital counseling, we're about to do it for for uh, 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 Kelly and Hannah. I almost forgot your names for a little bit. But for Kelly and Hannah. This is the first question I'm going to ask you. Why do you want to get married? Right? And so the idealist is like, well, we want to we be happy together. And the Sunday school answer is Jesus. And the real answer is we want to be intimate together. But we can't say it. Right? Well, what Jesus is showing us is that God gave us marriage, the purpose of marriage, is to glorify him through this loving and loyal covenant friendship. That's the answer, okay? You want to glorify God through this covenant friendship. It's this covenant friendship that makes marriage beautiful and powerful. So think about this. Even in a perfect world, without sin and suffering, God knew that we needed a companion. If we need a companion in that world... How much more do we need this companion in a world filled with sin and suffering? Uh, Christopher Lash, in his book on marriage, described marriage as two flawed people coming together to create a space of stability, love, and consolation, a haven in a heartless world. Isn't that what we want? That's what marriage is, a haven in a heartless world. Um, I saw a great illustration of this in... uh, at Sherry's grandpa's funeral. Uh, a few years ago, Sherry's uh, grandpa died. And at the funeral, his son Peter shared a story about Sherry's grandpa. His name was Tom. He was married to Margaret. They were married for decades and decades. I, I can't remember how long, but you know, uh, a long, long time. Had lots of kids, did lots of life together, uh, lots of ups and downs together. Well, towards the end of their marriage, Margaret developed Alzheimer's. And it got to where at the end of their marriage, she didn't, even, she didn't even recognize him as her husband. But every night when Tom would lay down before he'd go to sleep, he'd take off his watch and he'd take off his wedding ring and he would put them on the nightstand right beside him. And every morning when he got up, Tom would, first thing he would do is put on his watch and put on his wedding band. It was a symbol of love and faithfulness, love and loyalty throughout decades. That's beautiful, and it's powerful. Marriage as a covenant friendship is beautiful and powerful, but marriage as a covenant friendship is also challenging and difficult. Uh, When two sinners say, I do, they're committing to come together to work through a life of sin and suffering together, to work through good days and bad days. 
And that is the opposite of what our sinful nature wants to do. Our sinful nature wants us to continually pursue our our own desires and our own needs above our spouse's. Like Chris McCandless, what we really want is to walk away and do our own thing. We got this person that we're united to. Our flesh wants to to pull away and do our own thing, but we're also united to this person. And so that causes us to sin against this person. And that's why forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance are necessary for marriage. Uh, This passage where Jesus uh, talks about marriage in Matthew 19, I don't think it's any coincidence it comes after Matthew 18. Matthew 18 has passages about forgiveness and reconciliation, and then passage 19, and then chapter 19 has the passage on marriage. Right? It takes forgiveness, repentance, reconciliation, and renewal of this covenant to have a marriage that lasts. As we do those things, we develop a deeper friendship with our spouse. A few years ago, I heard a story about a man whose pastor asked him, is your wife your best friend? And when he heard that question, it hit him like a ton of bricks. And he looked at his pastor and he said, no. And his pastor said, I want you to go home. I want you to talk to your wife about that. And so he went home and he confessed to his wife uh, that she was not his best friend, but he wanted to become her best friend. He wanted her to become his best friend. He wanted to be her best friend. And they were open and honest with each other in that conversation. And it started a journey for them of drawing near to each other in friendship. Not just being married, but being friends in their marriage. And it took time, but they, they worked on it, and their, their marriage grew, and it deepened, and it was richer. What would it look like for you to go home to your spouse and say, how can we be best friends? What would it look like for our relationship to deepen, for us to be best friends? What, what do I need to do to be your best friend? Talk about it. Um, God's original intent was for us to be in a covenant friendship of love and loyalty. And that's what he does in this passage. He restores that view of marriage. The next thing he does is he acknowledges the reality of divorce. Look at verses uh, 7, 8, and 9. He said to them, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. So much like today, there was a a debate in Jesus' day about what was a lawful divorce. And you had two schools of camp. You had the conservative camp that said you could only divorce for an indecency, an extreme indecency, and that comes from a passage in the Old Testament where, uh, where God says that if, there's, if a man wear, marries a woman, he finds some indecency in her, he can write her a certificate of divorce, right? And so you had a very conservative view of that, and then you had a very laxed view of it. And you had people who wanted divorce for any cause at all. We talked about that last week. If a woman's cooking was bad, then, then a Pharisee could write her a certificate of divorce. If his heart cooled towards her, he could write her a certificate of divorce. And so it looks like the Pharisees here had kind of taken that more liberal or lax view of divorce. As they say, can he, can he write her a certificate of divorce for anything and send her away? And so <laughs> Jesus, uh, he, he's, he's definitely taking the conservative approach. But what he's also saying is that they're missing the whole point. The whole point is about, not about the certificate of divorce, but it's about the marriage. There was no, it says, 
why then did Moses command? There was no commandment for divorce. There was a concession. God made a concession because of sin. Divorce was not God's original intent for marriage, but he allowed it to protect marriage, not promote divorce. So what Jesus' answer does is it restricts divorce to one exception, sexual immorality. Now, the word he uses for sexual immorality here is porneia. There's a lot of debate about what porneia means here in this passage, okay? Uh, but it's basically a comprehensive term that includes all sexual immorality, uh, all, all types of um, uh, fornication, and all of, of natural or unnatural forms, okay? So the question is, why sexual morality? Why is sexual morality so serious that Jesus grants an exception to divorce in that situation? Well, Think about what we said originally. What is a marriage covenant? It's when two people become one flesh. And so what sexual morality does is it severs that one flesh commitment that you have made with your spouse. It is a a violent cutting of that covenant. It severs it. Um, In the Old Testament, uh, if someone committed sexual morality, then the consequence of that was divorce. And so what the New Testament seems to be implying is that there is a metaphorical, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament, an offending party could be put to death. If they committed the sexual morality, they could be put to death. And so what the New Testament seems to be implying is that when that offense is committed, there's a metaphorical death. And that when in that situation, then the, the innocent party is released from that marriage and they are free to remarry. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul, so there's definitely adultery. In, second, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul includes abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. He says if you're married to an unbelieving spouse and they abandon you, then you are, uh, you are free to remarry. Uh, it seems like he's extending Jesus' uh, uh, teaching here to include this abandonment, that abandonment is such a, a violent severing of the marriage covenant that uh, it, the, the innocent party is free to remarry. And our denomination has, in our church has taken that to apply that also to abuse. That if, that if abuse takes place in a marriage, that that is such a violent violation of the marriage covenant that the innocent spouse is free to divorce and remarry without sin. So those are the three grounds we believe for a biblical divorce. Adultery, abandonment, and abuse. But what I really want to get at here as we talk a little bit more about this is just the heart of why God did this. Why would God, first of all, why would God restrict divorce? God restricts divorce because he loves us. He cares for us. He knows that marriage unites two people in one flesh, and divorce is an amputation. It's a, it's a violent cutting away of that covenant. Uh, divorce is not like taking off your shoe. It's like having your foot cut off. Divorce should never be your first, second, or third choice in your marriage when it gets hard. Because divorce does irreparable harm to everyone in it. Um, First, we need to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. Uh, We need to to exhaust every available opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation before we go to divorce. Um, I've not been divorced, so I don't know what it feels like. And so I didn't feel like I could stand up here and, and talk to you about what it felt like to be divorced if I've never been divorced. That's like uh, somebody who's not a parent trying to tell people what it's like to be a parent. It's a bad idea, okay? Just letting you know that. If you don't have kids, don't start telling people how to, what it's like to parent, all right? 
So what I did this week is I talked to a few people in our congregation who have been through divorces, of which we have several, and they all talked about the pain of their divorce. Some were divorced for biblical reasons, some were divorced for unbiblical reasons, but they all just talked about it. It was painful. It was hard. And they still struggle with the consequences of their divorces today. Um, research shows that the children of divorced families will struggle with the consequences of divorce for years to come. God knows that, and he loves us, so he restricts divorce to the very direst of situations. An unbiblical divorce is not the path to the good life. Uh, in his book on marriage, Tim Keller tells a story about a woman who had an affair. It led to a divorce. And of course, she thought this affair was going to last and it was going to be wonderful, and it didn't. And shortly after her divorce, uh, the affair ended and she was left alone. And so as she, as she struggled through the pain and chaos of her own marriage, she saw her parents who were married and had been married together for decades. And she said that the, um, the fleeting passion of her divorce was nothing compared to the love and devotion that her parents had through years of marriage. Um, if you're in a hard marriage, uh, divorce is not the pathway to the good life. That, that better person that you want to be married to that better marriage that you want to have, that is with your spouse. Okay? So we love you. We care for you. We want to help you walk through a hard marriage if you have one. Uh, we'll get you counseling. We'll get you the help that you need. Um, but it is not the path to good life. Um, but if you go through a divorce, biblical or unbiblical, um, even if you go through an unbiblical divorce, right, um, that is not the unpardonable sin. That is not going to keep you out of the good life. You do not have a scarlet D stamped on your head that you're going to wear for the rest of your life. Repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation, church discipline, all those things will need to take place. But there can be restoration of your soul to the body of Christ and to Jesus. Um, God restricts divorce because he loves us. But God also allows divorce because he loves us. Uh, divorce is a protection. Uh, divorce protects a vulnerable spouse from abuse. It protects an abandoned spouse from neglect. It protects a faithful spouse from an unfaithful spouse. Every divorce is an amputation, but sometimes an amputation is necessary to save a life. Uh, in 2003, there was a man named Aaron Ralston. He was mountaineering through Utah, and as he was mountaineering, a boulder fell on top of him, and it pinned him to the ground. He laid there for two days suffering, and after two days, he realized that if he didn't free himself, he was going to die. So with his free hand, he pulled out his pocket knife, and he cut his own arm off with his pocket knife, tied it with a tourniquet, walked out of the mountains, and lived. That's a bad man right there. Yeah, I could do that. The point is that amputation was necessary to save his life. Sometimes a divorce is necessary to save life. That amputation is necessary. Even Jesus acknowledges that there are times when a divorce is acceptable because of the extreme sinfulness and hardness of our hearts. Even God uh, in the Old Testament calls himself a divorcee because of the way Israel has betrayed him. 
divorcees can experience the good life. We need to surround them uh, before, during, and after. Um, and God can even use that. Uh, God can use that time. God can use their challenges, um, not just to make them bitter, but to make them beautiful. Uh, as I was talking with one person who was divorced, and they had gone through multiple divorces. Uh, they had just read a book on suffering. Uh, whenever they found out that their spouse had cheated on them, and, um, and in that moment, they remembered a line from the book uh, that suffering could either make you bitter or beautiful. And so they fell on their knees and they prayed that God would use their suffering to make them beautiful. And that's what it's done. They've been able to heal and grow and forgive and change and become a beautiful part of the body of Christ. Jesus restores our view of marriage. Jesus acknowledges the reality of divorce. And Jesus gives the gift of singleness. So the disciples were so surprised by what Jesus said. They were like, wait a minute. Okay, if, this is, if what you're saying is true, then maybe it's better if we don't marry. Maybe it's better to stay single. And Jesus didn't disagree with them. Okay? That tells you how hard and challenging marriage is. Jesus knew it. But he says that this singleness is a gift. He said some would be eunuchs from birth, some would be made eunuchs, and some would choose to be eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. A eunuch was somebody who was incapable of having children either by force or by birth. They would be chaste and they would be unmarried. So in this, te- in this teaching, Jesus is saying that singleness is a legitimate calling in his kingdom. This means that singleness is a legitimate calling in the Christian life. That if you're single, you're unmarried, you are not a second-class citizen in Jesus' kingdom. The good life is available to you regardless of your relationship status on Facebook or Instagram. It's a calling. It's not only a calling, but it's a gift that can be received. Right? All of us experience singleness uh, for some season in our life. Um, some is a short season and some is a long time. No matter, no matter how long it is, we need to use our singleness uh, to love God and to serve him. Whenever I was in college, I had a pastor who was single. He had been single his entire life and he would be single until the day he died. He passed away a few years ago. But all he did with his singleness was pastor a church, lead a youth group, lead about a dozen FCA groups around the city of Tulsa, serve as a sideline reporter for a football team, mentor athletes, and mentor coaches. With all of his free time, he pastored thousands and thousands of people and led countless people to Christ. That's how we use our singleness to love and serve God. So if you're, if you're single, if you're unmarried, find ways to serve your church and serve your community. Develop uh, multi-generational relationships. Develop healthy friendships with male and female Uh, Date wisely, practice chastity, um, and whether or not you're single for a season or you're single for a life, we want the church to be your family. We want the church to be a place where you feel loved and accepted. Uh, A few years ago, Sharon, I had a friend who went through a divorce, and uh, it was a very terrible time for her. Um, She was was cheated on by her spouse several times, and so uh, she had no choice but to divorce him. And uh, as she was going through the divorce, the, the church loved her, cared for her, surrounded her. She let them surround her. Um, and at the end of her divorce, after she was already divorced, people kept asking her, are you going to move back home to be with your family? Because her family lived someplace else. And she said, why would I move? My family's the church. 
We want our church to be that kind of place for people who are single, um, whether they're divorced or, or not. We want, the, we want the church to be a family. Right? Because regardless of our relationship status, the good life is available for all of us, whether you're married, divorced, or single. Um, Jesus, uh, through the person and work of Jesus, you can have the good life. Jesus is faithful uh, to the, he's a faithful spouse to sinners and tax collectors, to scribes and Pharisees, uh, to divorcees and married people and singles. Um, God is gracious and kind to us despite all of our sins. Um, the good life, thankfully, does not go to the self-righteous and the proud and the boastful and the pure, but rather the good life goes to the poor, the repentant, and the humble who cry out to God for grace and mercy. God graciously forgives them of their sins and cleanses them. And as we grow in the grace and the forgiveness of the gospel, uh, then, we, then we experience his faithfulness and we extend uh, faithful love and loyalty to those around us. And there's a beautiful picture of this in the scriptures. It's in the book of Hosea, right? God tells the prophet Hosea, I want you to marry this adulterous woman and take her as your wife. And over and over again in their marriage, she leaves him, she cheats on him for another, and repeatedly God says, I want you to take her back. I want you to take her back. I want you to take her back. Because Hosea's marriage to Gomer was a picture of uh, God's marriage to his people and of Christ's marriage to the church. Though we are unfaithful, Christ is faithful. He loves us, he accepts us, and he takes us back. It says in Hosea 2, 19 and 20, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. The Lord is our faithful spouse. He takes us even when we're unfaithful. So let's go to him and pray and ask that he would do that now.